Good morning. So that was good, right? The baptism. While you guys are singing, I was changing. I have, so so I'm, I missed out on the worship part, but I got the, uh, he reigns above all, and so that is an appropriate uh, theme for what we'll be seeing. I was, as I was, we were up there and doing the baptism, I was feeling like, I, I like having a baptismal here, but it would be nice if everybody could see her going under and coming out. You guys can't see that, and so uh, that's an important thing. It, it was exciting. So today, we continue our study in the book of Colossians. Uh, turn in your Bibles to chapter 1, verse 15, and we'll be looking at 15 through 18 today. 130 years ago, some of you guys were just children then, uh, in 1983, excuse me, 1883, the World's Fair was held in Chicago. Anybody go to that? Mom? No, I'm just kidding. Ooh. Some 21 people visited, not including my parents, uh, the spectacular exhibits, one of which was the World Parliament of Religions. Here, representatives of uh, the world's religions met to share their best thoughts and ideas, to come together, if you will. They even considered coming up with a, maybe a more inclusive new world religion. But at the same time, evangelist D.L. Moody saw the World's Fair as a great chance to proclaim the gospel. Moody's friends wanted him to attack this world parliament of religions, but he refused, saying, I'm going to make Jesus Christ so attractive that men will turn to him. Moody knew that preaching Christ and his greatness, declaring his supremacy, sufficiency, and sacrificial saving work would do the job, and it did. Thousands came to Christ during that time. Now, Moody's approach was nothing new. In fact, it goes back to the apostles and comes right out of the New Testament. As Paul wrote to the Corinthians, but we preach Christ crucified, preaching the greatness of Christ and not the weakness of other religions or philosophies is the model set forth in Scripture. And this is evident in the book of Colossians, especially the passage we'll look at uh, both this week and next week. Now, if you remember, two weeks ago, we saw that the church in Colossae was under attack from false teachers, false philosophies, teachers who focus not on the gospel of Jesus Christ, but on human philosophies of their own, uh, of their own making, visions that they supposedly received, and legalistic practices that people need to, needed to do in order to earn favor with God. And Paul could have, he could have chosen to attack these false teachers, attack them directly, pointing out the deceitful emptiness of their teaching. But that's not what he did. Instead, he beautifully and positively proclaimed Christ and his greatness. That's what we'll see, both this week and next, as we examine Colossians 1, 15 through 20 is really the whole thing. We're going to cover 15 through 18 today, look at 19, 20, and then a few verses past next week. These verses are the clearest presentation of the supremacy of Christ anywhere in the Bible. They declare the preeminence of Christ. The word preeminent means above, superior to, the best, to be first, to hold first position. 
Paul declares that Christ is to be, he, excuse me, is the be-all and end-all of all, the first in everything. And as Moody saw, this is the message, the, the message of Christ that unbelievers need to understand if they're to put their faith in Jesus Christ. They need to know His greatness. But for those, like many of us, who've already trusted in Him, like Elishba, who declared her faith before us this morning, this message is also of great importance. For, for as our knowledge, uh, both our head knowledge and as it moves into our heart, our knowledge of Christ's greatness, supremacy, and preeminence increases. As our knowledge of Christ increases, our love for Him, our trust in Him, and our desire to serve and obey Him increases as well. And that's my prayer for us today, that we'll increase in our knowledge of Christ, not for knowledge's sake, not so we can know some more stuff, but so that our love for, trust in, service and obedience to Christ will increase, will grow in Christ today through His Word. And that brings us to verses 15 through 18, where we find three areas of Christ's preeminence. First, Christ is preeminent in His character. And they will all be C's in case you want to guess the other ones. I know people are frustrated. Sometimes I do it, sometimes I don't. Because I can, right? And by character, I mean who he is. His nature, his essence. Verse 15, speaking of Christ, Paul begins by writing, He is the image of the invisible God. Paul briefly and beautifully declares the divine character of Christ. This is who he is. His very essence, his nature is that of God. As the Nicene Creed declares, he is very God of very God. Now we need to understand what Paul means by he is the image of the invisible God. The word image, which we'll get to shortly, has confused some. But the fact that God is invisible, I think is pretty clear. As Paul wrote to Timothy, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. We can't really see God, right? God is spirit. He's invisible to us. Painters have struggled with God's invisibility and have often chosen to represent him as an old white-haired man. But he's not. So what does God look like? Well, we don't know. We don't know what he physically looks like if we could even comprehend it. He's invisible. But we do know that Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. That's really Paul's main point here. Get this. If you want to see God, look to Jesus. If you want to see God, if you want to know God, look at Jesus. That's John's point as well in chapter 1 of his gospel. In this chapter, he's introducing Jesus in a number of ways. And in verse 18, he writes, No one has ever seen God, because God is invisible. However, Jesus, God the Son, the only God who is at the Father's right hand, He has made Him known. Jesus reveals God. Jesus is the exegesis, the explanation of God. He is the image of the invisible God. The Greek word translated image is familiar to us. It is the Greek word icon, where we get our English word icon, right? An icon. This means an image or representation. 
Sometimes the Greek word was used to mean, uh, mean uh, a picture. Archaeologists uncovered a note from an ancient Greek soldier to his father, which read, I sent you a little portrait, Iconion, of myself, painted by, and then he names the artist. From this kind of usage, we can see that Jesus is the portrait of God, but not the physical portrait. It's very interesting that nowhere in the New Testament is there a physical description of Jesus, right? We don't know how tall he is. We don't know how long his hair was. We, don't, we, don't, we just don't know uh, the shade of his complexion. We don't know. And I think this is on purpose. Because if we knew, we'd like, oh, I got to be like this tall, and that's the perfect guy. Basically, all we know is he was a Hebrew man. What he looked like physically was not important. It did not reveal God. It was not the image of God. So when Paul speaks of Christ as the image, the portrait of God, he's speaking of the fact that Christ is God. Therefore, he shows forth the character of God. If you want to see God, look at Jesus. Christ shows us the nature of God. He reveals divine mercy and love and power and kindness and gentleness and holiness and righteousness and justice. And we could go on. Christ reveals who God is. As verse 19 of Colossians 1 will make clear, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So Christ, as the image of the invisible God, is not just some iconic representation, some painting of God. Jesus is the revelation of God's character, what God is really like. The writer of Hebrews expressed the same thought in a very powerful way. He, Christ, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He is very God of very God. We should also note that Jesus is the image, not simply an image. The Colossians didn't need any extra philosophy or visions to understand God more fully. Christ alone gives us the true, full picture of God. As John Calvin observed, we must be careful not to look for God anywhere else. For apart from Christ, whatever offers itself to us in the name of God will turn out to be an idol. I know some people like to say they see God in a creation. And yes, the heavens declare the glory of the Lord, and the skies above proclaim His handiwork. So we can see the power, uh, maybe even the cre- creativity of God in His creation. But the creation is not by any means a full picture of God. As we'll see shortly, Christ is, a far greater, is far greater than the creation. And one reason for that is because only in Christ can we see the image, the exact character, the nature of God. The preeminence of Christ's character as that of the divine God is proly, boldly proclaimed. As Paul says, he is the icon, the image of the invisible God. Jesus is not just a piece of the puzzle. That when put together is God, Jesus is the whole picture. Fully put, do you hate it when you have, do a puzzle and there's a missing piece? There's no missing piece. Look at Jesus. See God. He is God. Now, the fact that Jesus is the image of God reminds us of something, or it reminded me of something, and then I'll tell you what that was. Maybe it reminded you as well. Reminds us something of ourselves, right? 
Because in Genesis 1.27, we read, So God, that's God, uh, Elohim, plural of El, God. So uh, we get even our first notion of the Trinity, of Christ is there. In that, in that word God is Christ. So uh, we could say, so Christ created man in his own image. In the image of Christ, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Jesus is the eternal, uncreated, always existing image of God. And at a point in time, God created us in his image. Not that we, we would become divine as he is. Not that we would uh, look like God physically, but that we would be like Him in terms of His character. That we would reflect His love and joy and holiness and righteousness and kindness and gentleness and compassion, etc. We, human beings, were created to be like Christ. And so knowing that should cause us to seek to know Christ in every possible way, right? This is your created to be like Christ. You should know as much as possible about Christ. As Paul wrote to the church in Philippi, after describing his credentials as a Hebrew among Hebrews, he writes, but whatever gain I had, whatever was good about me, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For Paul... Created in the image of God, in the image of Christ, knowing Christ was the most important thing of his life, as well it should be, for all who were created in his image, for you and for I. So the question I have for us today, what are we doing in our lives that's causing us to grow in our knowledge of Christ? How much time do we spend getting to know him through his word, through prayer? For he's the image of the invisible God. It's by knowing Christ that we know God. It's by knowing Christ that it's the only way to know God. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Jesus said that. We learn of God by learning of Christ. And by learning of Christ, we learn who we should be as well. So learn of Christ. See Him in His Word. Take Him, uh, take him in through times of prayer. Know Him who is the image, the revelation of the invisible God. So we've seen the preeminence of, of Christ in His character, His divinity, His godness. Now Paul declares Christ is preeminent in His creation. In verses 15 through 17, Paul describes Christ's preeminence, firstness in creation in four ways. First, Christ is firstborn. Of all creation. Verse 15, second half. He, the first half, he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, at first, no pun intended, intended, this might be taken as teaching that Jesus was the first person created, right? The firstborn. In fact, the Jehovah Witnesses and other heretics before them take it this way. But to interpret it this way, you must totally ignore um, a, a lot of other things. First, you have to ignore the immediate context, the other things Paul has written and will write. You, you ignore what Paul is teaching about Christ. He's just told us Jesus is the image of God. He's God. And he will tell us, moving forward, that Jesus is the creator of everything, all things. Therefore, he cannot be the creator of himself. 
And to say Jesus was the first person created, you must also ignore parts of the New Testament, which make it clear that Christ is the eternal God, therefore not created. The first thing the Apostle John writes in his gospel to introduce Jesus is, in the beginning was the Word, and in verse 14 he'll say, and the Word became flesh. This is Jesus, the Word, the Logos. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and to leave no doubt, and the Word was God. In the beginning, before all things, before there was a creation, there was the Word, Jesus, and the Word was God. So both the context of Colossians and other New Testament passages teach that Jesus was not the first person created. Plus, if you just look at how the phrase firstborn is used in the Bible, you'll see that it it can mean first child. It can be talking about birth. But it very often is simply a term that means first in rank or honor. Firstborn was a, a code word, if you will, for the coming Messiah. Psalm 89:27 And I will make him firstborn the highest of the kings of the earth first in rank not that he would be the first king ever on earth also the people of Israel as a whole were sometimes called firstborn to indicate their high position as recipients of God's love for them in Exodus 4:22 God speaking to Moses we read Then you shall say to Pharaoh thus says the Lord Israel is my firstborn son So when Paul called Christ the firstborn over all creation, he meant that he he has the highest honor. The highest honor belongs to him. Christ is completely preeminent in all creation, over all creation. Why? Because Christ is the creator of all things. That's our second of four points here. Verse 16, For by him all things were created. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Jesus, as God, is the creator. From nothing he created all things. And the extent of his creation is amazing. It includes angels. The scriptures and other Jewish literature reveals that the four descriptions, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, refer to four classes of angelic power. So this is speaking of the spiritual world. God created the spiritual world. If you remember, one of the false teachings coming into the church in Colossae was the worship of of angels. In chapter 2, verse 18, Paul wrote, Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels. The false teachers were saying that along with God, you need to worship these other spiritual beings. But Paul boldly says that Jesus is God who created everything, including the angels. Why worship the creature when you can, when you should, when you must worship the creator alone? Christ is the creator of all. Worship him. For all, for by him all things were created. Christ created the universe and everything in it. From the smallest, you may know the smallest thing in the universe? What do we got? Come on. Electron, that's pretty close. Quark, who said that? Oh, Julia, you're so geniusy. <laughs> I don't claim to know this stuff, but my son does have a PhD in physics, so I'll mention that. So I, I ask him about these things. 
A quark is the smallest thing we are aware of, by the way. Uh, we, we weren't aware of it in the past. Maybe we thought it was, you know, anyway, I won't go there. Uh, the quark makes up protons and neutrons. Christ created the smallest quark to the largest star. The largest star we are currently aware of is named, anybody got that one? Julia? What? Beetlejuice. That, be, you say that three times and you're in trouble. According to my research, uh, Stevenson 2-18, the largest star that we're aware of, again, are, we're limited, it's a red supergiant with an estimated radius around 2,150 times that of our sun, which corresponds to a volume around 10 billion times bigger than the sun. If placed in the center of the solar system, if you took uh, Stevenson 2.18 and put it where the sun is, uh, we would be gone because it would stretch all the way to Saturn. It would just encompass most of our solar system. So Christ created everything from the smallest quark to the largest star and everything in between. Which means, of course, He created you and me. In fact, we, humanity, not Stevenson 2.18, were the grand finale of His creation. As we read earlier, on the sixth day, God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him, male and female, He created them. Christ, as the creator of all things, including you and I, is preeminent, first, above, over, surpassing all things. He surpasses us. He's better than us. He's above us. And not only is Christ the creator of all creation, uh, get this, this is important, Christ is the purpose of all creation. We see this in the last, uh, last words of verse 16. All things were created through him and for him. Three little words with such meaning. Let's look at some of it. It's an astounding statement, really. Christ not only created all things, but he is the goal, the purpose of all things which he created. His creation, the angels, the universe, all that's in it, time, space, matter, heaven and earth, is all for Him. This is His story. And we have the opportunity to be part of it, but we do not have the opportunity to be the goal of it. It's for Him. I'm sorry to break it to you, but you nor I are the purpose uh, of even our own creation. We are so insistent on our own rights to be who we want to be, to do what we want to do, we have the right to that, don't we? But do we, do we understand that we were created uh, not for ourselves? We, humanity itself, were created for Christ. The purpose, the goal, the reason for creation is for Christ. The glory of Christ, the glory of God. All aspects of creation are for His glory. That's what David meant when he wrote, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. And as Isaiah makes clear, everyone who's called by his name, who I created for my glory, who I formed and made. We were created for his glory, to show forth his greatness, to give ourselves to him without reservation, saying, God, 
uh, use me for your purposes. Use me that the world might see your greatness and they too might declare your glory. And don't be fooled by the fact that most of humanity does not currently seek to glorify Christ. Don't think, well, he might have created all things for his glory, for him, but it seems uh, most things are not for him. Don't worry. One day, whether they want to or not, all will glorify Christ. I can promise you that because the Word of God promises that. As Paul wrote to the Philippians, Therefore God will highly exalt Him, Christ, and bestow upon Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. One day, everyone, everything, angels, demons, Satan, believers, non-believers, will give glory to Jesus Christ. Some who trusted Him in this life will do it with joy in their hearts and will continue to do it throughout all of eternity. And some, some who rebelled against, continually rebelled against Him, who did not trust Him, will throughout all eternity glorify Him with deep regret. But all will bow before Christ, for creation is for Him, for His glory. And since this is true, we must live completely for Him. Any other course is completely uh, stupid, irrational, irresponsible. Paul makes this point in, uh, beginning in Romans chapter eleven thirty six. Paul's given, if you're with us in Romans, he's given a lot of... Uh, theological content in those first 11 chapters. Remember, and he concludes it with these words. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. And then he starts the application part of his letter. Chapter 12, verse 1. Next verse. All things come from Christ and all things are for Christ. All things are created by him and for him. Next verse, he writes... I appeal to you, therefore, because of that, because that's true, because all things are from Him and through Him and to Him, because He created all things and all things are for Him. Brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your spiritual or, or rational, it's another way of translating that word, uh, worship. So let me ask you a question. Is your life spiritual or unspiritual, rational or irrational? Are you living totally for God, which is totally rational? Or are you living for yourself or, or something else, which is uh, totally irrational? If all things were created by Him and for Him, and they were, they are, then the only rational, logical thing to do is live for Him. To, to, to take up the purpose for which you were created. To glorify Him. To present your bodies as a living sacrifice to Him for His glory. So Christ is the firstborn, creator, and, 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 and the purpose of all creation. One final thing. Just in case you're thinking, well, I can, I can do without Him. Christ is the sustainer of all creation. Verse 17, and he is before all things. Again, Christ is the creator. He existed before creation. 
and in him all things hold together. You see what Paul is saying here? Not only did Christ create all things for himself, but if Christ did not continue to hold all things together, all creation would come apart. The universe would explode or implode or disintegrate or disappear. I don't know how, I don't know exactly what would happen. It wouldn't be good. As, as we saw earlier in Hebrews, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Physicists tell us, we talked about this a little bit, uh, that within the atom, within atoms that make up all matter in the universe, there are subatomic particles, protons, neutrons, electrons. I have a picture here of an atom. I took that picture. I got a really tiny microscope and just took that picture. Just kidding. Uh, you can Google search pictures of atoms, and there you go. Now, protons and neutrons make up uh, the nucleus of the atom, and electrons orbit the nucleus, okay? But, but within each atom, there's a relatively vast amount of space. It doesn't really do justice here. The, the electrons are a little farther out uh, from their orbit around the nucleus. Not unlike the space between planets in our solar system. Though some have theories as to why the atom holds together, no one knows for sure. But the Bible tells us, Christ holds all things together. Take that little atom, he's holding it together. He's keeping those electrons in orbit. In him, all things hold together. There's a medieval painting, which I read about, but couldn't find a picture of, so I'm trusting it exists. Uh, it shows Christ in the clouds, and below him, the world of humans and nature. From Christ to every object is painted a, a thin gold thread. The artist was saying that Christ is responsible for sustaining the existence of every created thing. Christ is holding the very atoms of your body together. Maybe we might consider giving our bodies as a living sacrifice to him. Amen? So we've seen that Christ is preeminent first above, before all creation. He's the firstborn and thus the highest, has the highest place. He's the creator of everything, every cosmic speck, every spirit. He's the purpose, creation is for him. He's the sustainer, he holds every atom together. What a profound, amazing revelation this is. I pray the truth of Christ's greatness is sinking its roots deep into your heart, your mind, and your heart. I pray that our puny minds are being stretched and our hearts are being transformed because when we truly understand what's being said here, it's amazing that we should ever look anywhere else for meaning or purpose in life. Since he's the creator who holds all things together, he knows how how best to fix, to reorder, to prioritize our lives. The most rational, wise, smart thing we can do is give ourselves with our vast defects and problems to our creator and sustainer. Many years ago, uh, a South American company bought a printing press from a firm in the United States. 
After it had been shipped and assembled, the workmen and other printing experts could not get it to operate properly. Finally, the company wired a message. You know, it was a long time ago, they're wiring messages to the manufacturer, asking them to send someone to fix it. Understanding the urgency of the request, the U.S. firm sent the person who designed the press. But when he arrived, the South American officials were skeptical because he was very young. They sent this cable to the manufacturer. Your man is too young. Send a more experienced person. The reply came back. He made the machine. He can fix it. Christ created us. He sustains us. We're made for him. He alone can truly fix us. All we need to do is submit our lives, our problems, our brokenness to him. So Paul's declared Christ's preeminence in his character and his creation. Final point, he declares Christ is preeminent in his church. Verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church. The word church here is the Greek ekklesia, which means the assembly or the called out ones. And it doesn't refer to a specific denomination or a group of Christians. It's the, it's the church worldwide and refers to every person, regardless of church affiliation, who's trusted in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. We become part of His church, His body, of which He alone is the head when we trust in Him. As Paul wrote to the Romans, so we, though many, are one body in Christ. One body in Christ. And what Paul's saying to the Colossians is that Christ is preeminent over the church. He's first place. He's the head. He's the head over every believer, just as he is preeminent over creation. So we have sort of this double preeminence, right? Christ is head over us because he created us, and he's head over us because he's the head of the church that we're part of. He's our head. He leads us. He guides us. He directs us. Without a head, a body cannot function. I know that's profound. Some of you didn't know that, but it's very true. And without Christ, the church cannot function. He's the leader. He's the one in control. And the reason for Christ's exalted position, the reason He is the head of the church, Paul says, is because He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. You might think he would just say, well, because he's God, he should be the head. Well, he gives, he gives this reason that relates to us, okay? We saw that this word firstborn in verse 15, where it meant first in rank, and here it's the same thing. Paul was not saying Jesus was the first person to be raised from the dead, because uh, he wasn't. There were several resurrections recorded in the Old Testament and several more in the New Testament, including the most famous uh, Lazarus. So Jesus wasn't the first, time-wise, to be raised from the dead. However, he was first rank-wise. He was the most important of all who've been raised from the dead. Because without his resurrection, there could be no eternal resurrection for others. Every person who was raised from the dead uh, uh, before Christ died again. But Christ rose to eternal life. And those who are in Christ will rise to eternal life as well. As Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who've fallen asleep, the dead. For, by, for as by a man death came, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as Adam 
For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Christ is the firstfruits in terms of our eternal resurrection. Christ chose to enter his own creation. He took on bodily uh, uh, form, created and sustained by his own power. He took on a body that he created the, the elements for. He died on a cross, the wood of which he had created. And then because of his complete righteousness, death could not hold him. He rose to be the firstborn from among the dead. And all who are in him, that all who are in him might also experience resurrection and eternal life. What a, what a, what a wonder. And therefore Christ is the head of the church. He's the head of those who will uh, follow him in resurrection. This is a wonder that, that should impact every one of our lives. Paul makes that very clear. He bottom lines it, if you will, at the end of verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be, there's the word we've been using, preeminent. It means first, to hold first place, to be above everything else. And I also looked up the word everything, and interestingly, it means everything, all things, everything. So Paul's saying that because he's the firstborn from the dead, he's the head of the church, because his resurrection provides for our resurrection and eternal life, therefore we must, he must, not we must, hold first place in everything, including everything in your life and mine. He must be first in our families, first in our marriages, First in our professions, first in our mission and ministry, first in matters of our thought life, first in the usage of our time, first place in, in our loves, first place in our conversations, first place in our pleasures and recreations, first in what we listen to and watch on TV and in our devices, first place in worship, and anything else you can think of. Christ is preeminent, first in all things. I remember people like, to, people like to prioritize their lives, right? First is, and if you're a good Christian, you say what? First is God or Christ or Jesus or what? And second is family. And third is others, right? Something like that. Other people. I'm, I'm trying to trap you here, by the way, so you're doing good. Don't answer. You can't do that. You have no right to make those kind of priorities. Christ is first period. And whatever he tells you is second is second in that time in your life, in that place. Now, the Bible gives guidance, and of course your family's important and all that. My point is, Christ is first. The other things will fall into place if you put Christ first. He's preeminent in his character. He is God. He's preeminent in his creation. He is the firstborn creator and sustainer and purpose of all creation. He's preeminent in His church, which all of those who trust in Him belong to. Let us give Him first place in our lives. 
Let us grow in our love for, trust in, service, and obedience to the preeminent Christ. Would you pray with me? Father God, what an amazing description of your beloved Son. His great importance. His greatness. Surpassing, I don't think, uh, at least I will say I don't totally comprehend it. It's above my pay grade, Father, and I, I trust you to continue to work in my mind, in my heart, and, and also in, in, of those here, that we would understand this, that it would go deep, that we would just understand how great, how supreme, how preeminent Christ is, and it would affect our lives. It would affect how we live, that we would seek our purpose, our meaning in nothing else but Christ and what he has for us. Father, I put that into your hands for each and every one of us. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, if you want to stand with me one.